welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Tom Elliott. In 2012, Tom and his brother James co-founded Pizza Pilgrims, which evolved out of a single street food stand in London, selling Neapolitan-style pizzas. Pizza Pilgrims has since become one of the most celebrated British pizzerias, and its latest opening will be in Brighton in July. Tom, welcome to Table Talk. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Tom, as regular listeners will know, we always start at the same place, which is the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? My earliest memories of food? Do you know what? This is such an apt question, because I've just started a little dinner for founders of restaurants, because it's quite a unique thing to have founded a restaurant. And the conceit of the dinner is that three founders cook for all the others, and they have to cook their like Prussian Madeleine. They have to cook their like childhood moment. And my one is Toad in the Hole. I do not care who knows it, but Toad in the Hole to me is like just the warmest of warm hugs. How some Hackney-based restaurant has not done a sort of full Toad in the Hole-based concept, I do not know. Because (laughs) it feels like it's just about ready for a full postmodern comeback, I reckon. And who would have been cooking you Toad in the Hole? Was your mother? My mother would have been cooking me toad in the hole. So we, she, with my father, ran pubs that had a sort of good quality pub food skew. And things like toad in the hole were like absolutely on the menu stuff. So yeah, we, we kind of grew up above a pub. So like that kind of pub food, English pub food stuff is where we're at. Although I do remember that they used to have on the menu like a meat fondue. And they used to have these like young waitresses coming out the kitchen of a busy pub carrying boiling oil, basically. And I... To this day, I still don't understand how they never had a massive crisis around that. That just seems, that seems like a bold choice. What was it like growing up above a pub and, and presumably in a pub for a lot of your childhood? Do you know what? It's amazing. It's like everything hospitality. It just makes you so comfortable with people in all forms. And like you just, we used to, my brother particularly used to, you know, we'd be literally living upstairs and my parents would go off and, you know, have a glass of wine and watch telly or whatever. And then they'd go back to check on my brother, who was probably six at the time, not see he wasn't in his room. And he'd be downstairs on a bar stool in his pyjamas, having a Coke <laughs> at the bar with the locals. I mean, that, that, that was just part of it. And I think it just, as I say, with everything hospitality, it's just, you're just, the exposure to people is just so complete and total that you, you just, you learn so much about how to kind of, how to spend time around people of all all shapes and sizes, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. And what were mealtimes like in your family? Yeah, I think, like, quite hectic. We definitely did sit down and have dinner together. Like, that was a thing. And that's not something we do very often. I've now got two young kids myself, and we don't enough sit round a table. I mean, they're very, really quite young at the moment. But, yeah, it's definitely something that I felt like I did have a lot in my childhood and I don't have so often now, which is a massive shame, isn't it? Like... I think having that hour to just sit around, I mean, it's interesting because we employ a lot of Italians and like that is still so fundamentally ingrained into their, into their day of like, I'm going to sit down with people and share like a food moment and like any business decisions we make with Italians, like they 90% of the time happen over food. They don't happen like in a sterile room with spreadsheets, they happen over dinner. Food being like central to discussion and decision is, is, is a real shame that I think our culture's lost a bit. Were you a fussy eater or an adventurous eater when you were younger? I'm just, I'm picturing you around this meat fondue. So I'm assuming you're adventurous, but tell us about it. 
I would say I'm probably a fussy eater and I, I do love eating out and trying new things. But like the really sad truth about me is that like quite often I will, you know, you get home, you get home quite late and you end up just eating brown food. You end up eating like egg on toast or something or like waffles or like sausage sandwich or something. It's just so depressing. And I think so many chefs do that. I think they spend so much time around food that actually just having something like easy and simple at home is, is a thing. But I would describe myself as a fussy eater for sure. But then there are things that I remember hating so much when I was younger. I, I, I remember hating more than anything else in the world, like bread and butter pudding. I remember being forced, like I have this vivid memory of being forced to sit at the table and eat bread and butter pudding and just thinking, what is this devil's creation? And now bread and butter pudding is the best thing in the world. Yeah. How has that, how's that changed? There's nothing not to like about bread and butter <laughs> pudding. That's why I can't figure out. And what about school food? What are your memories of school food? School food. My number one, because I was actually away at school, and my number one memory about school food is in the morning, like, obsessing over toast. Like, it was literally a function of, like, how quickly can you get white toast from the toaster to the table with butter on it and eat it? And, like, every second counted. Like, I still think, like, hot buttered white toast. I honestly don't think there's many, many greater things in life. And I think I just remember that being an obsession at school around, I think we used to have like, everyone had to take a turn to be like toast monitor. And it was this like really important thing. And uh, yeah, white toast, still, still a massive part of my morning. So where did your love of cooking or food come from? Did it, did it happen at school or after that? So I, th- I think it literally happened in the pubs. So like my mum quite often would be in the kitchen in the pub. And she would be the head chef, you know, run, running the service. And I think, she, so she was always a very, very good cook. So she is like the sort of queen of things like lasagna or moussaka, like anything with white sauce, she still makes it best. Even my wife, even my wife admits that my mum's lasagna is impossible to beat. So that's quite a moment. But yeah, so I think we always had food there. My dad used to, before he ran the pubs, he was an importer of wine. So he used to spend quite a lot of time in France at like with growers and uh, vineyards and stuff like, obviously like, you know, their food culture is amazing. So I just remember eating weird things like, I mean, it's sort of not what you want to talk about now, but foie gras, I remember eating when I was six and loving it. And that sounds like so awful just to repeat that to myself. Like I kind of don't always want to cut it out of the podcast, but like those kind of like super adventurous things we did, we did get to eat. But if I'm absolutely honest with you, between the two of you is my brother, who's the real chef. He went and did a cooking course. He went and did the sort of the ski season thing where you have to cook for eight people every night. And he did that for two years. And then he went and did a cooking course in Italy. And actually it was him doing the cooking course in Italy, which was the beginning of the germ of the Pizza Pilgrims idea, I think. So tell us about Pizza Pilgrims. At what point was it conceived? And and sort of when did you decide that you wanted to run a pizzeria? Well, we both had been in London in sort of proper jobs for like four or five years. I worked in advertising and James worked in TV. And we were just in the pub one evening being like, we hate our jobs. They're just, they're so miserable. It's just like moving nonsense around the world and I can't really handle it anymore. And we both wanted to start a food business. You obviously had the pub thing in us, but we didn't have any money. We didn't have any investment. What was just starting to happen in like 2011 was this idea of like a street food business that had like quality at its heart. And you know, you had the meat wagon in Peckham, you know, parked up in a car park, serving like incredible burgers based on, you know, and tweeting out where they were gonna be. And then having a queue around the block just in the middle of nowhere. 
And so that for the first time, it was like, well, maybe you could start a business in that mold. You know, that is a really quality-led business that's about doing great stuff, but you can do it on a budget and you can get, you know, you can get real awareness for it. That idea of the meat wagon then combined with James's thoughts around, he'd been doing this, this course in Italy and had noticed that everyone had a pizza oven in their garden. And the original, very original kernel of the idea was to do a pizza oven business. And then Jamie Oliver did it. And we were like, oh, okay, he's probably, he's probably going to get this one covered. So <laughs> then, then we had the, kind of the, the pizza oven business, the meat wagon thing, about three to four beers. And that all like combined into a, we should totally start a street food pizza business. And it genuinely went from there. I think that was probably like April 2011. I think I probably quit my job within two months of that in June. And then, I mean, no joke, I literally quit my job and then like woke up on Monday one without a job and was like, we have nowhere near got enough to start this business. <laughs> so I had to go and get another job like the next week. But the bones, the idea were there. And then just had this weird coincidence where the most senior person in the advertising agency I worked in was leaving to start a, an amazing bakery in Cambridge, which she still runs with her husband. Anyway, I emailed her, never having met her, being like, I heard you're leaving to start a bakery. You've never met me, but I'm leaving to start a pizzeria let, let, or a pizza van. Let's go and have a, a beer together. Went and had a beer with her. And her husband, by coincidence, is a guy called Tim Hayward, who's like... Oh, this is Fitzbillies, isn't it? Yeah, so this is Fitzbillies, yeah. which they still run in Cambridge in many locations now. But Tim, I mean, I don't know if you know Tim, but like... He's yeah. just one of life's fantastic enthusiasts. And we went to go and meet his wife to talk just because I was like, you're starting a bakery, let's go and talk about flour. And then Tim was there and Tim was like, this is a fantastic idea. Because at this point we'd had just about had the idea that going to Italy to buy, we, we sort of developed the idea a bit and we were like, we need to get a van because pizza ovens are heavy. And then we we're like, it would be cheaper to buy the van in Italy. And then we could go and like learn a bit about pizza because we don't know anything about it. So that, that like, very kernel of the idea was formed when we went and had this fateful beer and Tim was there. He was like, this is the greatest idea that mankind has ever had. You just need to get on and do it. <laughs> and it was just that, like, that moment that was like, well, if he thinks it's a good idea, basically he was the first person, I think, that didn't look at us like we were sort of absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that gave us the momentum to be like, right. And, and Tim, to, you know, not many people know this because it wasn't a big success, but... Tim was like, you should film this thing and make it into a TV show. It would be awesome. We hadn't thought about that at all. So we woke up the next morning and we were like, well, James worked in TV. So he kind of sort of knew how to write something. So be, we wrote out a pitch and we sent it to all the big names like Optimum and Fresh One and all those guys. And like two weeks later, they all came back being like, yeah, this sounds amazing. Let's totally make a TV show about this. This sounds great. But then it transpired that they were like, oh, this will take sort of 18 months to two years to you know, get a broadcast partner. And we were like, we're not interested in that. That's just, we want to go on with it. So then this other third person, like, I think we'd sent it to a friend of a friend or something. We hadn't met the guy. And they were a much smaller production company. And they were like, look, we'll take a punt on it without a partner. We'll come, we'll film it. And then you know, we believe in it and we think we'll, we'll make a show out of it. And, and they did. And we, we made a TV show out of it, which aired on the Food Network. And I think probably about 12 people watched it. Although it's quite big in Nigeria, apparently. <laughs> We're a big following in Nigeria. Big in Nigeria. <laughs> and what, what was it like learning about pizza in Italy? And, and were the Italians you met receptive to two British guys driving around learning about pizza? I think they were quite bemused, to be honest, because I think since we, since we started Pizza Pilgrims, not because, but since, Neapolitan pizza particularly has become much, much bigger in people's sort of consciousness. And like that idea of like pizza as a really artisan product, I think in 10 years has moved on so much 
So when we turned up in 2011, asking loads of questions about flowers, I think they're a bit like, no one's ever really asked us this stuff. Certainly no British people have ever come to Italy to talk about pizza flour or making pizza. So I think they're a little bamused. But that was the, the, the absolute best thing about the TV show is that it, it opened doors that we could never have opened on our own. So if we just emailed, you know, Antimo Caputo, who is, runs the biggest flour mill in Naples, and said, hey, we're two Muppets from England that you've never heard of. Can we come and have a tour of your flour mill? I think you would have told us to get stuff. But the fact we're like, oh, we're making a TV show about Trip Through Italy about pizza. You know, we got this access and, we, you know, and now we call Antimo a friend, but we got the opportunity to meet him because of the show. And that, that was its legacy for us, is that it just opened these doors and it... You know, we had a lot of people, of course, going like, I'll never tell you the dough recipe because, it's, you know, it's an ancient family recipe. But then as soon as you get a camera out, they'll tell you twice to the camera and show you. And that bit, that bit was the magic. And, and I think we were quite aware of that at the time is, you know, we were we were getting into like some of the amazing dough kitchens of Naples and being able to see it all happen. It was, it was really cool. And you say that before you went to Italy, you knew nothing about pizza. I mean... What are we talking? Had you made pizza before? Never. Really, really? Never, never made pizza. Had no concept that Neapolitan pizza was different to any other kind. Had no concept that like pizza changed through Italy. Honestly, I think I'd been to Italy once when I was five. That was the only time I'd ever been to Italy. Spoke zero Italian. Genuinely, we were starting from... I wish, I actually wish that I had like been you know a boy that had posters of pizza on my wall when I was six and I you know, had this amazing backstory of how it all built up to this amazing crescendo it really wasn't that at all it, if I'm honest the reason it was pizza was pretty cold I mean there was the Italian bit but from my point of view it was more like street food is happening it's getting really exciting no one is doing pizza this seems weird and so I, that was where I was coming from on the pizza thing of like this seems like an opportunity because it's obviously one of the sort of world's favorite foods and, and yeah, we, we set off to Italy to learn and that was really the plan. But then quite genuinely had just a moment, you know, being in Naples, having your first pizza in Naples, just being like, wow, how have I lived for 28 years and not had this? This is unbelievable. And I think that's part of the problem with pizza is, you know, pizza, it's very rare that you have a pizza that is very bad. Like you can have a very, very bad hamburger. I really believe you can, but it's pretty rare that you have kind of cheese, tomato and bread and it's not kind of passable. And I think that meant that just like, you know, you could have a lot of pizza in your life, but never really worry about it being better. But I think once we'd had that pizza, we were like, how do we recreate this experience as much as we can? And, and what was it that you're trying to recreate? What, what is the secret to a good Neapolitan pizza? I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's such a sort of like well-trodden answer, but it's, it's just simplicity and quality of ingredients and skill of the chef. I think that's the bit that's often forgotten with pizza is there's sort of this assumption that you know, once we'd started out, we'd just get endless calls from people who ran pub companies who were like, yeah, so we want to take out our kitchen and put in Neapolitan pizza. Like, can you talk me through it? And I was like, well, it's really, really hard. You need to have incredibly skilled guys. You need to make the dough fresh every day. You need to adapt the dough based on, you know, how hot it is or humid it is or what the kind of moisture content of the flour is, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, pizza, Neapolitan pizza in itself, you know, it's it's... The dough is the, the crucial thing to everything. And I think that's the difference between, if you're really going to boil it down, I would say, you know, Italians would say the dough is the most important thing, whereas potentially other cultures might say the toppings are the most important thing. Whereas like the Italians is all about the dough. The dough in itself is literally yeast, flour, water, salt, nothing else. And then a margarita is the dough, fior di latte, mozzarella, tomatoes and basil, maybe a bit of parmesan. 
And that's it. I mean, it couldn't be more simple. But, you know, if you, if you look at the sort of association of the, you know, uh, Neapolitan Pizza Association thing, I was going to try and do that in Italian, but I think I'll drop that. They've got like a, you know, like a 40-page manual about how to make a margarita and what you can and can't do. And, you know, to make it, to make it great is, is harder than, than it looks, disappointingly. And when did you realise that you'd sort of hit pizza gold with this idea? Do you know what? As with everything, it, t- it took us a long time. We, we did the van. So we did the trip, got back from the trip, put the oven in the van against the advice of the people who make the van. They were like, this will not work. But we just sort of ignored them and did it. Then we got the market stall. I think the moment, the first moment where I was like, this could be a thing. There was a restaurant, I don't know if you remember it, called Pick You. Mm. And they were absolutely at the forefront of this stuff. So they had their van on the summer, the summer of 2011, they had a van under Hungerford Bridge. And then by, I think, probably mid-2012, they had, like, probably the coolest restaurant in London on that little corner in Soho. And, you know, I think it sat, like, 20 people downstairs and you would queue for an hour. And you said how you'd queue and then you'd have, like, a little bit in the bar upstairs where you'd drink about 17 picklebacks. And then you'd be so drunk and hungry that you would just go and have barbecue and just then you'd leave being like this is the best food I've ever eaten in my life and anyway we were in Soho on the van and we got a feature done by us on something like something ludicrous like I've never had a reason to be in in my life like GQ came and did a feature around street food vans that were becoming restaurants and they did this whole page thing of like on pick you being like the little van that became a restaurant and then they had a little section on us in the bottom right being like the little van that could become a restaurant and it was like the first time that anyone had like said to us that like this was more than just a bit of a, a hobby really like quite genuinely I thought we'd start the van it was going to like get me out of advertising and it would last for six months whilst I kind of got James off with the idea because he was the chefy one and then I would go and have to do something else because none of the numbers that we projected suggested anything other than it could support one person not two and so there was just no version in my head really when I started and when we first started I'd got another job so I used to work for the week magazine I used to do work with them in the morning and then I would walk down to the van, do the lunch service on the van on Berwick Street Market and then go back to my desk and sort of hope that no one had noticed that I'd been away for two hours, not one. And like that, that's how much <laughs> faith I had in the idea at the very, very beginning to be able to support both <laughs> of us. But I think, you know, we had that, that feature probably came out in May, having started the van in March. And then after that, we started to get, you know, we were in Soho, so we started to get loads of bookings and stuff and we just did everything. I mean, we turned up at every, anyone that would have us and we did we filled every single day. We got arrested in a car park in Camden trying to sell pizza to people coming out of nightclubs. We just did literally everything. And by the end of the summer, it was sort of more and more clear that actually this has grown. We still weren't making any money, but like, I guess we were building a name for ourselves. We had a bit of a following on Twitter. It was starting to grow. And that was the point where I was like, I probably should give this another year because actually there looks like there might be something in it. And you've gone from a van to a restaurant to now a chain of restaurants and a very successful chain of restaurants, which obviously you must be very proud of. But are you at all nostalgic for the van days at all? I mean, literally every time it's sunny. Making pizza on a market in Soho is literally like tarring the roof of Shawshank. You just feel like you're a free man. You are like absolutely, you know, this is the moment. You're, you're kind of doing Fisher-Price business. They're giving you five quid. You're giving them a pizza. You're getting to see them enjoy it in front of you. It's kind of the complete closed loop of hospitality and you don't get it anywhere else. It's not often you get the opportunity to quote a Jeffrey Archer book. Have you ever read As the Crow Flies by Jeffrey Archer? I haven't. We've had, we've had him on the podcast though. He, I mean, he is a disappointingly great story. Right? Like, I mean, he's not a good writer, but he, his stories are amazing. <laughs> I just remember so vividly that story. It's like basically 
I'm not comparing myself to them so much, but it's about a guy who starts on a barrow in the East End and builds this massive, like, department store. And the sort of end of the book is, like, he's all successful and everything's great and they can't find him. And bottom line is he's, like, back on the market. He's back on the market stall doing his market trading in the East End whilst all this is going on in, in the side. So, you know, I, I quite often feel like, God, I would love to just be doing that again. <laughs> But also, we're so lucky to work with amazing people in Pizza Pilgrims. And yeah, we're just bowled over. And it really has happened like, it's such a sort of cliche, but it really has happened organically. There was no kind of master plan here. It's just like opportunities present themselves and we had great people working for us and we wanted to find opportunities for them to grow. And yeah, I guess we just sort of kept riding the wave. And then, yeah, and the wave kept going until sort of the 13th of March, 2020. Tell us about that. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, you know, it's been a weird, weird thing. It's been a really, really weird thing. It was, it was so intense. And that week where I think they came out on the Monday and were like, don't go to restaurants, don't go to bars, stay at home, essentially. But they didn't close us or like tell us there was any support coming. It was just like, don't go, we'll get back to you. And so we had this crazy week where it was like, I mean, our sales fell through the floor. There were no sales left. We employed a lot of Italians who were going, guys, what are you doing? Like, I'm getting calls from my parents saying that people are dying in hospital corridors. Like, we just need to stop. But we were like, well, look, it's all well and good, guys, but we can't support this. But this, this will fall over tomorrow if we can't get... So we kind of had this horrible week. We were like, what do we do about this? Because one half of me is saying everyone should just go home and lock their doors. But I knew that if we did that, we couldn't pay anyone's bills and we'd have weeks and the company would, would fall over, right? So we kind of did a straw poll. Anyone who was really scared stayed at home. And for everyone else, we're like, we are going to trade everywhere we can to the maximum we can to get as much money in the door as possible to keep this going for as long as possible. And then I think probably that was probably the Monday, the Tuesday, that was sort of ticking along. I think by the Wednesday, there was sort of this talk of like this mythical thing called furlough. And it was like, I think there's going to be some support here. They're going to find a way to make this work. And then we had this whole thing of like, you know, which countries are doing what. And there was like, you know, could they cover 40% of people's salaries? Would that be reasonable? Maybe it was 60%, you know, it was all... And I think 60% was probably where we were like, if we get 60, that would be amazing. And I remember on that Friday, we were all sat around on a Zoom call watching the news when they come out and they're like, we're going to cover 80% of everyone's salary. And it was just like, it was literally like the most emotional moment of Peace Pilgrims, I think. It was literally, our HR person was in tears. We were all basically drunk and just like confused about what had happened. But it was just this moment of like, everyone's gonna be okay, we're gonna be okay. And I think, yeah, after that, I think we probably had 250 people employed at that time. And by the Monday, we had 248 people on furlough. And during the pandemic, were you still serving pizzas by kind of delivery? How did you handle so, that? So as of the day furlough was announced, we shut all the shops to everything. We just closed it all up. And we were just like, right, everyone go home. This is what we're being told to do by the government, so we're going to close up. We, we sort of ummed and ahed about doing Deliveroo, but actually like, the sentiment at the time was kind of basically one of fear. And like, people were like, I do not want to get on a tube. I do not want to come. So we were like, right, the, the right thing to do here is just like stop everything whilst we figure it out. And then after about two weeks of sitting at home, we got more and more calls being like, what are we going to do about this? I'm bored, sat at home. I'm actually you know, pretty confident that I'm a 25-year-old guy or girl and I'm going to be fine. So I want to get back to doing some stuff. And so we started to get those calls. So we're like, right, what we'll do is we'll open one site, which is our site in Victoria, which we'd only just opened. 
We'd opened two sites. We opened Victoria in January, and then we opened our Camden Pizza Academy thing, which is kind of sort of young person's training, training school in March. And then, anyway, they're all closed. We opened the Victoria one again because it was still in rent-free. We weren't paying any rent. So it was like, there's no risk here to opening. We did Deliveroo. The idea was to do Deliveroo out of it. And then we were talking about how it would be nice to do something else to try and, like, just even just to kind of, like, you know, have something to say on Instagram. And my brother, being my brother, was like, I've had this idea which we'd had before but never really executed properly of sending ingredients in, in boxes through the post and I was like that, that sounds like a really crap idea anyway he's like I'm going to send you one he sent me one the next day and this box turned out that had been like crushed by an elephant like, <laughs> like dough and tomato sauce and mozzarella all in pots he'd literally made it like Blue Peter style and like lots of double sided sticky tape and all that jazz and then uh, he posted it in this bag made of wool and like it was, it was a mess because there was no structure to it, but it was cold. Like temperature, there was a temperature probe in the bag, temperature probed it and it was like, yeah, this is legit cold. So we like, wouldn't it be cool to just send pizza kits to people through the post, they're stuck at home and then we can do like lessons online and it'd be really fun. It'd be a fun, like fun Instagram thing to do. So we did that. We put 50 up for sale on a Wednesday, but in the second week of being open in, in Victoria we put 50 up and we were like, it'd be cool if we could sell 50 in a week. That would feel like a real achievement. We just put them up, tweeted on it, put it on Instagram and we sold them in like under a minute. And we were like, wow, that's pretty mad. Where did that come from? So then the next day we did another 50 and I think I, I was sort of building the Shopify page like as we went. And um, yeah, we sold the second 50 on the second day in like 20 seconds. And I could see that like 200 people had tried to put one in their car in the first minute of trading. So we were like, hang on, we're really on something here. This could be a thing. So on the third day, we had this sort of like moral dilemma of do we do the right thing, which is trying to like figure out how to grow this and like slowly build it up? Or do we just try and sell as many kits as we possibly can and then figure out how to make them? And we obviously took the latter. So we put 1,100 kits up on the Friday morning to sell, being like, that'll get us through at least three or four days. And uh, we sold them all in 50 minutes. We're still like the busiest trading hour in the history of Pizza Pilgrims. And then it just, it, it was just this amazing, like, new life force for the company of, like, suddenly we had this thing that we couldn't make it fast enough. I mean, those 1,100, we literally were like, pay us 25 quid, and at some point between now and June, we will send you a pizza kit in a, bo- in a box. That's it. That's all we can commit to. We have no idea how to make them. We have no, like, factory place or anything. We're just going to figure this out. So if you're willing to support us, send us there and you have our word that we'll send you a kit at some point. And no one was going anywhere, so it was kind of great. And so, yeah, and then, then it was just this sort of frenetic thing of like, how do we convert Victoria into a production facility? And that business just throughout lockdown grew and grew and grew. And by, by February 21, we were doing 10,000 kits a week out of, like, out of the business. And it was, it was nuts. It was beyond nuts. And we had everyone from Stormzy to the Spice Girls to, they all, they, all these people did kits. We went on like this morning and big, bre- uh, not big breakfast, that was like 20 years ago. Sunday brunch, that's it. Yeah, it was crazy. We doubled our Instagram following. It was, it was mad. If there was, a, if there was a positive out of the whole coronavirus thing, it was that. And it was just great to feel like a sort of uh, a startup again, really. And Tom, when you're cooking for yourself and your family, what do you cook? Or do you, do you cook? Does your wife cook? No, I do cook. I cook a lot. I've just moved to Hove, so I have more time on the train than I used to, which is a... Uh, denting my cooking ability but I like cooking sort of big family type meals so I love making like uh well I guess back to my mum like things like masaka and that kind of thing I love making all that kind of stuff I just love a theme 
I love making like, right, we're having Greek night and you've got to have like at least four things that, that tie, tie together. So, uh, I mean, I very, very rarely cook pizza, if ever. I mean, I'd try and avoid that at all costs to have enough of that in my day job. I really love doing a roast dinner. It's a really boring one, but everyone always seems to think a roast dinner is really hard, but it's like really easy. So it's got this glorious like mega payback of like, everyone thinks you've done this incredible thing, but actually it's just about timings, right? And do you have a sweet tooth? Do I have a sweet tooth? Yes, I do, basically. My weakness is literally like eating Ben and Jerry's out of a tub. I'm kind of obsessed with Ben and Jerry, the whole thing. I don't know if you've ever listened to that podcast, How I Built This, but they're just incredible guys. And like, they're the only people I'm aware of who like sold their business to like Unilever and managed to keep it like a good business, as in like good, like doing good for the world. It's quite amazing. Plus, their ice cream is excellent. I'm sure, I'm sure someone's going to be like, oh, there's better ice cream than that, but I disagree. What's your favourite flavour? I like fish food. Classic. They used to have ch- the one called Chubby Hubby, which was like, had like peanut butter filled pretzels in it. It was great. But the, the crucial thing is a vanilla ice cream base. As soon as you get into chocolate ice cream base, it's game over for me. No one wants that. You've got to build on vanilla. <laughs> Everyone always talks about vanilla as like, almost like it's a bad thing. I, I don't get that. Like vanilla is amazing. It's just, a, it's a great like place to start, right? I mean, it's very exotic, something that's come to sort of symbolise yeah. the mundane. <laughs> it's like Madagascan flown in from wherever, and it's like, oh, boring old vanilla again. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I just do not get that. I, I mean, I have a real problem with that in general, like, to extrapolate that idea out. You know, let's say I eat Thai food once every seven weeks. When I go and have Thai food, I'm probably going to have a pad Thai and a green curry, because it's bloody delicious. Whereas, like, the next person's like, oh, I'm going to have something new every time. I'm quite bad at, like, sticking to my guns have your thing and you have it once every seven weeks and it's bloody delicious then you'll go back again <laughs> if i had thai food every day i probably would be a bit more experimental but do you know what i mean tom when you're when you're not at pizza pilgrims what other restaurants do you like to go to in london or hove or elsewhere around the uk the london restaurant scene given where i started out is just it's mind-blowing how far it's come isn't it i have to say like going to eat in italian restaurants like i mean trullo is one of the great restaurants of london for sure we recently went to Manteca in Shoreditch, which was like, really I mean, just mind-blowingly great. I went to Yaoacha recently. Have you been there recently? On the corner in Soho, it's like to dim sum. Mm. Just so, so fantastic. Like one of those places that's just been going forever and it's just, it almost gets better every time you go. I love that, I think that's, that's really cool. I think probably really guns to my head, favorite restaurant in London, I absolutely love like Brasserie Zadell. It's just everything about it is just magic. Like the room is magic. The, the fact that you feel like you're kind of going into sort of the line, the witch in the wardrobe because you get there. Everyone who's never been there gets there. and like, oh, it's kind of a little sort of slightly rough around the edges cafe upstairs. And then you walk through that bit and you go down through that amazing like corridor, the past the like theatre into that like ludicrously opulent room. And everyone's like, wow, that, that was a kind of amazing experience that the last minute was. And then you sit down, you have delicious food and you pay like... 19 pounds a head for like just the full amazing experience and then you leave i just think it's magical i love it love it love it love it i completely agree (laughs) and tell us what your desert island meal would be you can have as much as little as you want you can tell us about booze if you'd like to but you don't have to what's what's your ultimate meal one of the best things i've ever eaten and i don't know whether like context plays a huge part in this doesn't it but like we went to like 
for my 30th birthday, my wife bought me like a trip around the deep south because I love like that kind of music. We went to like Memphis and Nashville and... We did that for our honeymoon. Did you? It's, I yeah. mean, it is just such an incredible part of the world for so many reasons. Like, but yeah, we, we, drove, so we drove from Nashville down to um, New Orleans and we went to Jackson, which is still the reason my son's called Jackson. And yeah, we stopped basically in this like, someone had recommended this like little, I mean, it was, it was a shack for lack of a better word just like in the middle of Mississippi, in the middle of nowhere. And they did sort of like family style dining with like fried chicken and colored greens and like mashed potato and gravy. And like that fried chicken will live with me until the day I die. Like fried chicken done well. I know that's such a like, such a like base answer, but it's just, and, and the set, as you say, the setting, being in a shack in Mississippi, slightly too hot, you know, the whole thing is just, is, is a big part of it. but. Yeah, that, that fried chicken, I have to say, that would be my, that's, that's my desert island meal. That is a great choice. Okay, good, I'm glad. <laughs> we approve. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me. And the newest branch of Pizza Pilgrims is opening in Brighton in July, so be sure to visit that.